Hello and welcome to the 24th episode of the CCGI podcast. Our last episode featured Dr. Thierry Pichet, a sports scientist resident at CMCC. The interview was conducted entirely in French and we were very fortunate to have the New Brunswick Chiropractors Association Executive Director Dr. Francis LeBlanc host the episode. Today we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Matt Wenzel. Dr. Matt Wenzel is a chiropractor in British Columbia. He's originally from Nova Scotia and started his post-secondary schooling at Acadia University where he completed his Bachelor of Kinesiology in 2010, uh, receiving an Acadian Scholar distinction. Dr. Wenzel then attended CMCC, and after graduating in 2014, he moved to North Vancouver, where he currently resides. Matt practices full-time in North Vancouver and Richmond. He's currently pursuing a fellowship in sports sciences through the Royal Chiropractic College of Sports Sciences Canada, in addition to his Master's in Rehabilitation Sciences at UBC. Dr. Wentz also sits on the Board of Directors for SportsMed BC and is a committee member for the Royal College of Chiropractic Sciences Annual West Coast Conference. Welcome to the show, Matt. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Great. Thanks Thanks for joining us. I was speaking with you earlier before we started recording here, and hopefully we weren't caught off guard when we uh, you heard our last episode, which was entirely in French. <laughs> so <laughs> I was hoping I didn't have to follow that, that's for sure. Yeah, so we're back to English now, and fortunately, uh, yeah. for, 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 fortunate for that. And and also excited to have a, a, a fellow uh, BC resident on the show, uh, so welcome. Yeah, glad to be here. First off, we'd love to chat with you about your recent publication in the JCCA. You, uh, you put out a case report, and I was hoping you could tell us a bit about you know, why, you, why you wrote the case report and how you wrote it, um, so clinicians can understand a bit about that process, and, and then eventually tell us a bit about the case itself. Yeah, so I think for me personally, just uh, getting case report out there was probably a long time coming. Um, I... I'm, as, as you said, uh, Kent, I'm in the uh, sports residency program, and I know we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but uh, part of that program does necessitate that you uh, make a certain number of written contributions, um, some of which are case reports. So that was kind of the catalyst in, in me really following through with it. But with all that said, you know, during my time at CMCC, you know, I, I've known of and followed the JCCA, uh, JCCA so you know, I understand the importance of chiropractors contributing to the profession through this sort of medium. Uh, frankly, I think one of the reasons why I probably haven't done it sooner is simply because I just don't see myself as a strong writer. And, you know, it can be a little nerve wracking putting yourself out there for, you know, your peers to kind of evaluate, you know, what you're doing in practice and that sort of thing. But uh, overall, you know, I really enjoy the process uh, a whole lot more than I thought I would because it kind of forces you to do a deep dive and really understanding the topic you're writing about. And to a certain extent, it makes you, I think, a little more critical in how you uh, reflect and kind of evaluate the way in which you manage the case. As for, you know, how I wrote the case report, my um, residency supervisor gave me a really good resource, and I'm sure there's lots out there. Uh, But the resource was like a 2006 article from the Journal of uh, Chiropractic Medicine. Yeah. And uh, the, the title was how to write a case report for publication. So pretty straightforward, you know, and just following, you know, uh, their template, it really set me up well for how to structure the uh, case report, as well as how to pick a topic when you're looking through your caseload, like things that, you know, journals might be interested in or, or things that they may not. Um, so that's a great resource for any of the listeners um, that might be considering writing. The 
case report that I had put out was uh, dealing with the conservative management of uh, flexor halysis, uh, longus denosing tenosynovitis. So this was a chronic uh, long-term issue, about seven months uh, in duration, and uh, it was in a very high-level ballet dancer. So the way the, the report is structured, and it's in the most recent episode or uh, issue of the JCCA, for those interested, but uh, it first discusses the affected structure some general mechanisms of injury and uh, management options. And then we dovetail kind of into the case presentation and clinical findings and then the therapeutic intervention. And we end off with a discussion just talking about some important points, uh, you know, pertaining to the, the management of the case. So, you know, as far as the case itself goes, uh, you know, I think the big takeaway points from it is, is that it wasn't a quick fix. You know, it's not some case report of grandeur where things, you know, resolve quite quickly. The, the injury itself was seven months in the making. This uh, ballet dancer dances professionally. She was training six, or she was, let me see, rehearsing six hours uh, a day, and then on top of that, doing training as well. So we're putting a ton of load through, uh, you know, weight-bearing structure, and that, that tendon uh, saw a lot of stress over that time. So through the management, it took about four months. Um, you know, it was it was a long go. Um, and it also wasn't a case where, you know, a monotherapy approach was taken. You know, she received mobilization and manipulation, some soft tissue therapy and laser therapy. Uh, acupuncture was provided by another uh, practitioner and then a very specific graded rehab program. So there was a lot of elements that kind of came together to see her from this point where she could, you know, dance, but, you know, very little relative to what she could do to the point where she not only was previous to injury, but reported being even better than that. So. It was a long road and uh, a lot of pieces to the puzzle were kind of utilized to, to get her back. Um, and I think another important thing with the case itself, and it's probably comes to second nature to most chiropractors, is just looking above and below the injury site. I thought that was really of great importance in this case uh, because the dancer herself, you know, kind of noted some, some difficulty in turning out her stance lag. And this is this is coming back to one of the things I really liked about the case report is that deep dive I mentioned on, on understanding the topic. You know, uh, biomechanics are one thing, but ballet biomechanics are another. So kind of going down that rabbit hole and looking at what the literature says about some of the uh, the positions and jumps and how that can stress some affected uh, some of the tissues certainly helped in, in me kind of guiding uh, the rehab process. So in her case, we did a lot of hip work. And I think by most of our standards, you know, what she had for hip mobility was exceptional. She could turn out, but it just, there was that perceived extra effort needed to do so. So I think she was putting a lot of stress, valgus stress to the knee, uh, certainly some of those medial structures uh, causing maybe some arch collapse when she's turning her, uh, her hip out uh, maximally. And, and again, addressing that I think really helped with, um, you know, improving the uh, the injured structure well oh, that's great it, it was it was a really nice case uh, and and uh, I think you're probably being a little hard on yourself you you wrote you, you write really well um, it's funny you mentioned that uh, that paper uh, the 2006 paper for how to write a case report uh, uh, that's a paper Bart Green and Claire Johnson wrote that one uh, yeah that's right yeah. I think it's in the Journal of chiropractic medicine and mm -hmm. I, it's a paper that I actually refer a lot of new authors to, uh, especially as they're going through the process of trying to get the first paper, or especially a case report published. It's yeah, it's it gives a really great format for for people to follow. So yeah, good good on you for for doing so. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, it's a great resource. So when talking about the Sports Sciences Fellowship, I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who are interested in learning more about the program. Can you kind of tell us why you entered the program and what the requirements are? are and, and what it's been like for you being in the program? 
Yeah, I think there was a, a few reasons on, on why I joined the program. I, you know, I, I left uh, CMCC knowing I had a good uh, education, but I think like a lot of people, you have one question answered and two more pop up. So uh, for me personally, I didn't feel like I was done with school in a traditional sense um, about a year after being in uh, full-time practice. So I decided to do the uh, the sports residency. Uh, during my time also at CMCC, um, I, I really enjoyed working with athletes. You know, I, I found that they were pretty committed and engaged in the rehab process. And for me personally, I, I like the added bonus of seeing a little more diversity in the types of injuries that I'd be walking into uh, every day in practice. You know, athletes are, are people first and have people problems, but then you see the sports specific stuff. So it just keeps you on your toes. Um, I had a lot of mentors coming through uh, chiropractic college. So I thought that it would be also a good way to collaborate with them and then other like-minded uh, practitioners. So those were the main reasons. As for the, um, the residency program, I know it can be done two, two different ways, uh, one of which is internally through CMCC. And that's a pretty intensive uh, full-time two-year program. And a lot of practitioners end up doing it externally because it affords you the opportunity to work part or full-time uh, and chip away at the, uh, the requirements. Um, you know, this can be done remotely in basically any province or territory. Um, I believe there's even a couple um, out, of, out of country as well that are doing it. So as long as you have a, um, you get accepted in the program and have a sport fellow agree to supervise you through the process, it's typically uh, not an issue. And then with, uh, with the external program, you have a maximum of four years to complete the requirements. So it's more slow going than the internal program. Um, and, and what I mean by that, the four years is just getting all the requirements done up to the point of the exam. So the exam isn't something you can write as soon as you're done. There, there's only set times where they, they um, allow people to sit that. So um, it can take longer than the four years, but the, the requirements need to, need to be done within those four years. And these requirements, they vary. So there are academic, written, and practical components. Many of the academic requirements can be met by doing like additional post-secondary programs like a master's. I know some of the residents just audit individual courses through an accredited institution, so they don't do a whole like master's program. Um, you can also attend conferences and seminars that focus on different subjects that need to be covered. So there are different ways of getting hours uh, for these individual topics, things like sports psychology, sport nutrition, uh, you know, those are the big ones a lot of times that people kind of think, how am I going to get these? And and frankly, are some of the ones that people get through an accredited institution, but there are other uh, requirements there as well. As for the uh, written requirements, uh, they generally consist of writing some book reports, case reports, and, or a case series, um, a literature review or a systematic review, um, and then a research thesis. So this all depends on the stream that you decide to take. There are two streams. Um, and all of these need to be a publishable quality. So I think the written requirements have generally been the biggest hurdle for the residences, uh, sorry, for the residents. And uh, some of these changes ha have been made recently to make this process a little easier. Uh, and that's with respect to having other residents, uh, other fellows or other practitioners help co-author some of the manuscripts. So instead of having all the residents operate in silos where you know they're kind of cut off from their peers, uh, I think the idea is to foster more collaboration within the organization and, and have this something that, that's not only um, uh, more achievable, but again, it just creates more dialogue between the residents and, uh, and the fellows. And then the last piece of the uh, residency is a, th a thousand hours of uh, placements and field work. And, this includes uh, different things like sideline first 
aid, uh, treatment coverage at um, different sport events or with different teams, and then observations with sports physicians or orthopedic surgeons, and then attending other sport-related events. Um, I think that this aspect of the program has been a favorite of mine because it gets you out in the community and it's a great opportunity to network with uh, other medical and allied health professionals. It's a really good learning atmosphere and I think that Getting involved in this capacity helps improve people's take on what chiropractic is and how it can work with and be a complement to other forms of uh, care or management in the sport setting. And, and Matt, how, uh, what kind of field work have you been, been doing mostly? Mine is varied and they do encourage that. So they want you to get a, a little taste of um, contact or combat sports because the, the nature of that, you're going to see uh, some things certainly different than you would uh, with a non-contact uh, sport. So I do a lot with a local soccer team. Uh, I've worked with some football uh, football teams and um a lot of times, you know, Vancouver's a great, it's, it's an uh, event hub. So there's a lot of events that you can get involved in. And I've done everything from uh, climbing uh, events to golf events to karate and taekwondo. It, it really varies. And, and for those that are looking at doing the uh, program, I would definitely recommend just kind of keeping tabs on, on events, you know, whether they be regional, provincial, national, or so on in your area because those are really good ways to, to get a lot of hours quick. Uh, for me and, and my involvement with the soccer team, I'm on my fourth year with that. And, um, you know, the, the hours do add up, but they're, you know, if you can take a weekend to, to, uh, volunteer, you know, you can, you can chunk away at like eight to 16 hours in a weekend. And yeah, it's a long weekend, but that's a significant amount of hours that go towards that thousand hour limit. And, and you're also you know, currently doing your master's through UBC. How has it been juggling, you know, all, all of these things <laughs> on top of being in, in practice, right, and making a living? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, been, <laughs> it's been an experience. Uh, it is a bit, you know, it is a lot of times to, to juggle both. With the program at UBC, I find that some of the academic requirements from the UBC program will carry over to the uh, fellowship program, which is great. You know, it's kind of that two birds, one stone scenario, but at times when some of the UBC requirements do not work towards that, it can be a challenging thing to, to try to balance, um, you know, because, you know, the masters can kind of feel like you're, you're pulling you away from the, the residency a little bit. So it's trying to just find that balance. And then uh, amongst all that, you're also trying to just, you know, work full time and, and uh, you know, hopefully you have an understanding spouse. <laughs> That's a big, uh, big part of it as well. Um, yeah. She gets it. She's a chiropractor as well. So, um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a bit, but uh, as a whole, it's been a really good experience. So, uh, and, you know, the light is at the end of the tunnel here. So I, I, I'm getting closer and closer and it becomes a little more tolerable, I think, just knowing that that end, uh, the, the finish line is in sight. Yeah, that definitely helps. I know, I know the, um, the last year at, at CMCC, there's, there's lights at the end of the tunnel. You can kind of see, see the finish yeah. line that helps, right? So, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I was hoping you could also tell us a bit about how you integrate evidence in your practice or field work. And I know that you're, I think you're currently evaluating the FIFA 11 plus program, but um, I'm wondering if there are other guidelines or protocols that help you in your everyday practice. Yeah, the, yeah, so I am looking at the FIFA 11 plus program uh, through my UBC's research project. I'm looking at it a little differently than what it's traditionally looked at. The, for those that don't know, it's a program that FIFA uh, put effort between them and a few groups. And it's, a non, it's basically an injury prevention program for soccer players. Uh, I'm looking at it from a performance standpoint. So 
uh, the idea is, and there is some research to suggest that there may be a performance benefit to, um, you know, some soccer players or, or groups using the the warm up over a more traditional warm up and uh, seeing changes in speed, agility, jump height, and so on. So, trying to create a bit of a, a roundabout case for supporting the program uh, to create basically buy-in uh, and hopefully improve uh, program adherence between players and, and coaches because. I mean, let's face it, injury prevention is one thing, but if there's a performance benefit to the program, then I think you'll get more buy-in and, and commitment overall because it is a lengthy warm-up um, and, and um, you know, it might seem monotonous at times, but it's uh, it's very effective at, at what it's designed to do, and that's to reduce injuries, um, things like ACL uh, injuries, uh, hamstring strains, uh, ankle sprains, and so on. But, uh, yeah, as far as, you know, integrating evidence and practice, I think, a big part of integrating evidence and practice or in field work starts with finding ways to get access to that evidence in the first place. So, you know, fortunately for, for us, there are many mediums uh, in today's age to, to do this, and I'm not sure that there's any right or wrong way to keep up with anything. I think it really just depends on the uh, on the person. Obviously, resources like the CCGI are fantastic for chiropractors and other allied health professionals, so that's a great place to start. Outside of resources like the CCGI, for me personally, I use Facebook as a, a way to keep up with some journals I follow closely. So journals like the American Journal of Sport Medicine or the Journal of Orthopedic Sport and Physical uh, Orthopedic and Sport Physical Therapy, they regularly put out seminal and open access papers on various topics, including clinical guidelines and consensus statements. I'd also recommend that people consider. Um, getting RSS subscriptions through their email to a number of journals. So that way, when a new volume uh, or new edition comes out, you get emailed all of the abstracts and then you can sort through those. And if something catches your eye, then you can download it. So for me, I downloaded through my library, uh, my UBC library account. Um, but if you have a CMCC membership, then you can do it that way as well. Um, obviously, podcasts like this one is a great way to get you know your hands on some evidence. I also listen to um, the British Journal of Sport Medicine podcast, and uh, another really good one is Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast. So these are great ways to get information on different topics, uh, with, with many of them having takeaways that you can put into practice the next day. Uh, and I know you know a lot of people also use Twitter as a, a medium to keep up with stuff. I, I don't do so much of that, but that's just me. Um, but when it comes to actually implementing the evidence, I mean, clinical guidelines are a great place to start because you guys are pulling from uh, several high quality studies to, to create a bit of a framework to work within. You know, obviously there are nuances to each clinical interaction and case. So, you know, you'll need to tailor the approach um, you, you take to fit with each scenario, but that's, uh, that's a great place to start. Um, but if, yeah, if you guys are looking for like clinical guidelines specifically, I know the B uh, British Journal of Sports Medicine put out an updated uh, and open access clinical practice guideline for the uh, diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of lateral ankle sprains in March. So that's worth checking out since most chiros, you're going to see these coming in, into your office, whether, you know, th they're wanting to work on it or not, <laughs> you'll see somebody hobbling in the office. So, so that's a good paper to, to have on hand. I know that the um, Journal of Orthopedic and Sport Physical Therapy recently put out a revised uh, clinical practice guideline for mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy, and then one again for uh, meniscal and artic uh, articular cartilage lesions. So these are both uh, free and easy to find. And um, actually just yesterday, uh, a new Canadian guideline came out for physical activity throughout the pregnancy process. So that was released by uh, the Canadian Society for Exercise uh, Physiology. So actually I found that through um, Facebook again. That was uh, CASM, so the Canadian Academy of Sport and Exercise Medicine, they had posted that yesterday. So, so 
even following other groups, never mind journals, but even following other sport uh, bodies can be a really good way to get your hands on some of these uh, documents as well. So, yeah, that, that's what I, I can't really, t I mean, I could touch on those uh, guidelines, but I, I probably wouldn't do them justice. Some of them are pretty lengthy, um, but they're all, you know, free. So they're, they're uh, easy to get and uh, something that, uh, you know, you could just have on hand for if any of those injuries uh, kind of walk into your office or, uh, you know, certainly a pregnant woman asking about exercise. That's, that's brilliant to hear because, you know, guidelines serve have their place and serve a purpose but then we talk about the individual case that came into your office of the ballet dancer there's no guideline yeah. on that topic and so that's why it's fantastic mm -hmm. to have you know different evidence for different conditions yeah absolutely i think i think it's important to just treat uh, you know each person that comes in as an n of one i mean you can use the the, the guidelines as a framework but then you know the demands that she was putting on her body body far exceed that of somebody in the general population. So the approach, uh, you know, both to the rehab and then just the length of time it took to resolve and things like that, all of these things come into play. So, um, yeah, the guidelines are a great place to start. And then within those guidelines, you may have to modify things as needed, um, you know, depending on where you're at, where the patient's at and, and everything else. And for her, you know, surgery was out of the option. Uh, she had obligations and things like that with, with her dance career. So, um, it was a lengthy process, but uh, in her case, you know, it was uh, something that a, a guideline may not, may not, you know, give you all the information, but it's a great starting point. Exactly. Yep. Oh, wow. Well, that was great. Uh, well, I think we're probably right up against our time. Thanks. Thanks for your time, Matt. It was a real pleasure having you with us today. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. I definitely appreciate it and uh, look forward to hearing more of you guys' podcast in the future. Uh, thanks for that. And, and to the rest of our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And I'd like to encourage all of our listeners to pick up the most recent issue of the JCCA. Uh, I have obvious, conf obvious conflicts of interest on that front. Uh, but we look forward to bringing you our next guest in a couple of weeks. Bye for now.